We're told that on February 21, 1829, a prominent notice in the leading musical journal of Berlin invited readers to an important and happy event, a performance of The Passion According to St. Matthew by Johann Sebastian Bach under the direction of Herr Felix Mendelssohn Bartholdi. The notice, written by the editor, Adolf Bernhard Marx, and reprinted with additional commentary over the next few weeks, described the Passion as, quote, the greatest and holiest work of the great composer. The performance, Marx wrote, would open the gates of a temple long shut down. We are called, he continued, not to a festival of art, but to a most solemn religious celebration. And Berliners answered the call. On March 11, 1829, the date of the first performance, the hall of the Berlin Zing Akademie was filled. Close to a thousand people were turned away. Many prominent Berliners came, from King and Court to the philosophers Hegel and Schleiermacher. Goethe, unable to travel all the way from Weimar, still commented on the event in his correspondence with Karl Friedrich Zelter, director of the Zing Academy, the amateur group that provided singers for the Passion's double chorus. In the next months, more performances took place in Berlin and Frankfurt. In the next years, the score was published for the first time, and groups in Breslau, Stetten, Königsberg, Kassel, and Dresden performed it. Revivals and publications of Bach's other large-scale vocal works, notably the B minor Mass, followed. By 1850, and the founding of the Bach Gesellschaft, an association dedicated to producing a collected edition of Bach's complete works, the revival of Johann Sebastian Bach had become a defining feature of the musical landscape of both Europe and the United States, shaping private and public performances establishing music associations and publications, influencing composers, inspiring teachers and students, and reaching broad segments of the music-loving public. Mendelssohn's revival, more than any other single event, laid the foundation stone for the imaginary museum of musical works of the past. Words of Celia Applegate in her award-winning study, Bach in Berlin, Nation and Culture in Mendelssohn's Revival of the St. Matthew Passion. One of the important points Dr. Applegate makes about this landmark event has to do with the performing forces. She explains that amateurs, arguably more than any other group of musicians, created the environment in which the 1829 performance was possible. Karl Zelter described the ensemble, the Zing Akademie, as a community in which class differences ceased to exist, and the pursuit of art, separated from commerce and profit, established a place for self-fulfillment and service. Virtue dwelt there, he wrote, for every outsider and every member. Attentiveness without visible exertion, Beauty without privilege, multiplicity of all estates, ages, and trades without affectation, delight in a fine art without weariness, the young and the old, the aristocrat and the burgher, 
the joy and the discipline, the father and the daughter, the mother with her son, and every possible mixing of the sexes and the estates. The Zing Academy, he concluded, was like a flower garden in the spring. Dr. Applegate presents that performance of the St. Matthew Passion in 1829 as a defining moment in music history, one that has had reverberations beyond Berlin and beyond the 19th century to this very day. And the temptation for many music lovers might be to ask, what would it have been like to have been one of the fortunate ones who found a seat inside that hall on March 11, 1829? And the frustration is that we'll never truly know. But what's fascinating is that rather than turning to time travel fantasies, we can celebrate that pivotal performance by exploring what Mendelssohn might have aimed for in that concert. What did he hear in the St. Matthew Passion that he felt compelled to bring to life for a new era? There are those who ask those questions and dedicate their lives to discovering answers tentative though they may be, because hearing the Bach St. Matthew Passion filtered through the sensibilities of Felix Mendelssohn provides a doorway for us to experience the monumental work anew, and perhaps even in a thoroughly exhilarating way. That is the hope. The Bach Choir of Bethlehem, under the direction of Dr. Christopher Jackson, has the honor and privilege of presenting the world premiere performance of Mendelssohn's version of the St. Matthew Passion in a scholarly edition by Malcolm Bruno on Saturday, November 4th in the Packer Memorial Church at Lehigh University with a live recording to be made of the special event. Dr. Jackson paid a visit to the WVIA studios to share his enthusiasm about this event. It's the first big thing, and St. Matthew is... It's a, it's a long song, uh, as people like to say. You know, what's unique about this, though, is that we're performing a new scholarly edition of the work. Felix Mendelssohn, a romantic composer, is largely responsible for the rediscovery of Bach in the 1800s. J.S. Bach had largely fallen out of, of knowledge for folks, except for maybe as study material. And that's actually how Mendelssohn first encountered his music, was studying and from his keyboard teacher. But Mendelssohn became increasingly fascinated and found out about this St. Matthew Passion and asked for it for his 14th birthday. So he came from a rather affluent family and was able, I think, to officially put in a request to mom and dad, you know, what I really want is a copy of, of this St. This Matthew Passion that I've heard a lot about, but that I don't know much about. And so the parents sent scribes uh, over to Leipzig and they copied the parts out and brought them back to young Mendelssohn. And from that point, Mendelssohn proceeded to perform it multiple times in his life with some changes. And that's why what we're doing is, uh, is unique. And so there's a scholar, Malcolm Bruno, who edited this edition. And he's working with Baron Ryder, which is a major music publisher to produce this new scholarly edition and we're going to be the first ones to record it so it's got some cool changes that i can tell you about i'm actually pretty excited but i mean more than anything we're so excited to record it and live 
which is a different type of recording. What does it say that of all the choruses in the world, of all the ensembles in the world, you were the ones at the Bach Choir to do this? I, I, my sense of pride is, is really immense, and it's, it's one that I have for the choir itself. It is very likely that Mendelssohn, when he produced these performances of the St. Matthew Passion, was working with a choir extremely similar to the Bach Choir. So it would have been a group of volunteers, but but skilled volunteers, just just like the Bach Choir. And, you know, they would have worked at it pretty hard before trying to to bring it out into the world for for the first time. So Malcolm Bruno, who who edited the edition, he sought us out as as the people to record this because it was most like what Mendelssohn would be working with. And yeah, it's just a joy to do that. As an aside, what can you say, not as a Mendelssohn scholar, but just as someone who is conversant with preparing for this in your own background? Why was it Mendelssohn? What did he hear here that made him the one? What was that resonance? Do you have any guesses? You know, I I am studying these questions on a continual basis. And what we know is that Mendelssohn was profoundly influenced by, by these types of works he wrote a couple of large-scale oratorios himself, Elijah being the one that most people know, and then he has Christus, which is one that wasn't quite completed as well. And you can see the influence. There, there's recitative, there's aria, there are choruses. I mean, they're interwoven. The style of an oratorio does go all the way back to the early Baroque. So it's not just that he was influenced by Bach, but 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 there's 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 some things that that do help us understand the the level of influence. What's really fascinating to me is that Mendelssohn was doing some work really for the first time on behalf of our field. And what I mean by our field, what we might call musicologists or somebody who is looking at source material, like you know the scribe went and copied the the scores, and trying to make decisions about things that he was over. 70 years too late for. And so he had to do a lot of guesswork and he also modified it to fit more of the aesthetic ideas of the day. So for people who are familiar with Bach's original St. Matthew Passion, this clocks in at almost an hour shorter, which is astounding. And for many people, that's sacrilege, right? To take this monumental kind of tome that no one would dare alter and to see that, you know, Mendelssohn has has chopped and removed things and pulled out some parts. And it's uh, it's sort of like watching your your favorite piece of art be be snipped into bits and reassembled. <laughs> but Mendelssohn had specific ideas in mind. He wanted to heighten the drama. And to do that, he wanted to speed some things up. So some of the da capos, and that's where an aria will repeat the A section, but with ornaments. Some of those are just removed. They're gone. Six arias altogether are gone. And some of the explanation for that is dramatic. He wanted to speed up the rate of drama. But another explanation is some of them call for instruments that he didn't have access to or really understand. So when it in the score, it calls for a viola da gamba. Mendelssohn didn't know necessarily what to do with that. So out it came. That being said, you know, he made some alterations to the recitative as well. And that's when we're hearing 
a lot more of the biblical narrative. The selections straight from the Bible, from the book of Matthew, are mostly set in this speech-like format, recitative. And Mendelssohn, in one performance, instead of having it played on a harpsichord, he actually put it all in the cello section. So you have cello, celli, playing double stops and triple stops, which is two or three notes at a time, trying to get the chord to come out like a harpsichord. It's an odd choice for him to make, and he didn't make that choice all the time. We're actually going to use a piano that's a recreation of what Mendelssohn might have had, and we know that Mendelssohn used a piano like this in one of his early performances. So we're solving the harpsichord problem by using an early piano. Anyway, I could go on and on and on about these details. Have you and Malcolm been sitting down with the score and saying, this, what, how have you been working? Yes, and that's been one of the most fascinating things. Malcolm is not just an editor or a musicologist. You know, he, he's an artist. And so his, his chief concern is that people hear art when they hear this version, not just some attempt to recreate the past. And I really appreciate that about him. And for example... When Mendelssohn tore out certain chunks of the the recitative, Malcolm has now decided to make a mark in his edition where the conductor can tell that something had been removed. And before, in, in some earlier versions, Malcolm didn't quite do that. But what he found is that it was probably extremely useful for the conductor to know that some of the narrative had been removed and that Mendelssohn had jumped from one section to another. And that is helpful as an artist. It's that sort of information that Malcolm has included in the score and has really helped me understand. So we're going into this with a lot of excitement to to show this to the world. Where is he based? He's in Wales. Uh, he's, he's actually American-born and was so involved in the early music scene of kind of the 80s and 90s and really Bach, actually, and, and also another conductor named Andrew Parrott, was heavily involved with, with the early music scene and decided to just move there because he was so involved, moved move to Wales. So he's lived there. And so, you know, we have a five-hour time difference, and we regularly are talking with each other in preparation for the, for the recording and performance. And of course, we want to know what reaction the singers have and the orchestra well, the orchestra, some of them are elated and some of them are a little a little saddened by some of the changes. So Bach famously in, in St. Matthew Passion calls for two separate orchestras and two separate choirs. And that's one of the reasons why it's so hard to put on, uh, by the way. It's why it's rare because you have to have a, a lot of people in the room to put it on. And what Mendelssohn did is in Bach's original, Orchestra 2 gets a lot of work. It's not quite on par with Orchestra 1 in terms of, you know, the number of notes played. But Mendelssohn moves almost all of the heavy lifting to Orchestra 1. And Orchestra 2 then really now only joins the choir when the choir is in a large format. So that's how some of them feel. But you can imagine Orchestra 1 now gets to play some arias that they never got to play before. So, you know, they're they're excited. And then the singers are also, I think, very excited. I mean, 
the role of the person who advances the biblical narrative, that is known as the evangelist. And that term is common across most oratorios where somebody, you know, is advancing the biblical narrative. The evangelist, in this case, Mendelssohn rewrote even some of the notes to keep it from being so high. So the evangelist is actually quite thankful, quite grateful to not have to work so hard <laughs> in this performance. But in other cases, and again, for people who know St. Matthew Passion quite well, there's a famous aria, maybe one of the sort of showstoppers in, in St. Matthew Passion, Erbarmadich. It's an aria that in Bach's original is for the alto, and Mendelssohn rewrote it for the soprano. And so it still goes quite low, but then it also goes quite high, too high for most altos. So the soprano who's taking this on has to have a rich low range and also, you know, still the exquisite high range. But for many singers, they hear the aria and they're jealous of the alto in the original because it's such a beautiful aria. And now a soprano who formerly got to kind of sit there and wish they could sing it is going to sing it. So there's, there's some mixed reactions, but it's very interesting. And how did you determine who would be that fortunate soprano? How did you find and, and choose your soloist? That's a really good question. I did a ton of listening. So my experiences as a singer in the United States, and specifically of early music, I, I am connected to a lot of people, but I was looking for something that's hard to find, rich, low, and still somebody who can float as a soprano because they have other arias that are much more delicate. And so you need somebody who can do a lot of different things. So I started listening and I stumbled across some recordings by Clara Rotzolk. She solos often with the Bach Collegium San Diego and Carmel Bach Festival. And she happens to live in Philadelphia, which I had no idea. And I listened to these recordings of hers and I, I thought quite quickly that really might be the person. So I called her up and she's thrilled. I, again, the, the chance to sing Erbarmadich might be uh, what's getting her on board. And what about the reaction from the musical world? Are your colleagues out across the country and around the world interested in this project? People are excited. You know, the fact that Ryder are the ones who are publishing the edition is significant. They are a major scholarly publication in our field. And when they put something out that is, you know, from the early music world, people pay attention. So there's that that's going on. I think my favorite reaction is that people adore the St. Matthew Passion. I was talking to another colleague the other day. He's the conductor of the Handel Choir of Baltimore. Uh, his name is Brian Bartoldis. And, you know, he said something to me that it was a nice reminder. He said, St. Matthew Passion is one of the few things in my life I could say defined my faith. And many people feel similarly powerful feelings about this piece, whether they, you know, believe in some faith or just the profound sense of drama that and, and emotion that is contained in it. And so what I'm hearing from from people I know who are busy folks is that they really want to make the trip to be there for the live live performance. And and I joke with them, I I tell them how meaningful it is to me that they're going to be on the recording 
and I know they're just sitting out in the audience, but that's actually why we chose to make it a live recording is because musicians respond differently when there are people in the room and especially if those people care about what's going on. I, I know as a conductor, I feel it. I feel when the audience has been captured. I feel when they want us to succeed. I feel when they're bored. I can feel it. And having it be a live recording, we're really hoping to capture the enthusiasm and support and anticipation that people in the audience hopefully will be bringing to that singular moment in time and that we're going to capture it on a recording, I think is really important and, and kind of magical. What company is recording for you? They used to be known as Analecta, but now they're out here is the name. It was purchased. And so I'm not quite sure of all the legal, you know, requirements there, but now they're, they're called out here records and they used to be Analecta. In yeah. Canada, right? That's right. The exciting thing too is the notion that you are being entrusted with this. I'm not trying to make you lose sleep, but <laughs> you have to, as Malcolm wants it to be, and you equally want it to be a piece of art and not a museum piece. And so you're giving us the St. Matthew Passion, much loved by you and probably everybody in the room and Yet it's filtered through the sensibilities of someone who lived, as you say, 70 years later, almost 100 years later. Yeah. And you're listening now equally later. You're always interpreting, reinterpreting works, you know, Bach in our day and so forth. But what about this intermediary fellow, Mendelssohn, and what he did with the 19th century sensibility? Can you tell that yet? Um, you know... I, I'm going to be blunt and say there are clarinets. And so, you know, that's that's kind of a silly answer. But in terms of he just applied them into the piece, as was the, the, the notion at the time, like you have an orchestra, you need some clarinets, you know. So there are some things like that. But honestly, Mendelssohn's respect for the original work is extraordinarily high. The choir, I don't think a single note is changed for the choir which is fascinating. And then really, you know, the, the small things that happen within the orchestra, aside from the removal of certain things for dramatic purposes and the rewriting of, you know, some Erbarmadich and, and some of the evangelist parts, it's largely, you hear Bach. And what will be different is using that forte piano instead of a harpsichord and, and strings to accompany the recitative. And I look forward to it. I mean, I'm actually a huge fan of the forte piano. And for again, for people who I had to explain in my office, you know, they were calling it a piano or a pianoforte, which is what we call it now and the modern piano. And the terms were largely interchangeable for a long time. But as early music has become more of a field, what we mean when we say a forte piano is really a piano instrument that it was built before 1835 or so and it's got this beautiful cross between a, a harpsichord and a, and a modern piano and so i'm excited to to use that sound to help bring the recitatives to life i think it's going to have a fresh feeling to it that i'm just excited to interact with and you know i i think everyone will at least find the differences intriguing 
but I don't think they're going to inhibit the drama in any way, shape, or form. If anything, I can't wait to see how it's accelerated and to, to, to imagine how I'm going to feel after it's over. Because I think as everyone knows who has sat through St. Matthew, the feeling you get upon completion is, I, it's really indescribable. It's holy. And I really want to see what Mendelssohn has done to capture that, but also increase the drama. Will the keyboardist be one who's regularly with the Bach Festival yeah, Orchestra? Yes, it's Charlotte uh, Charlotte Maddox, who's been our our primary continual player for a long time, and she is excited to work with this instrument. You know, this is the other thing I'll say about what Malcolm has had to do. There is a copy of what Mendelssohn did at the Forte Piano for us to look at, but it doesn't answer all questions, as we know. You know, a famous saying, you can't read a book about swimming and and then, you know, learn to swim. You have to go do it. And so Mendelssohn, of course, he did things that probably weren't on the page. He was at the piano, so he could do whatever he wanted. So Malcolm has played a little detective work and took Mendelssohn's original. And so he's collaborating with Charlotte to do a few things that maybe weren't on the page, but make a lot of musical sense. For example, if people know the St. Matthew well, when Jesus sings in in St. Matthew, he's always accompanied by strings. People refer to it as a halo of strings, and it's supposed to sort of represent Jesus's divinity or the presence of God. And so that's still there. But how do you go from a kind of plunky, plucky forte piano sound into that and so we've had to answer that question and so malcolm and charlotte have been creative and you can imagine this isn't in mendelssohn's original part but sort of doing an improvised role into the string sound so you'll go from very dry plunky sound to something that they've created to help bring us into the divine sound of jesus so these are the fun things you get to do when you're working with source material and not all the answers are there. You have to do something unless you're just interested in being completely, well, no one can ever be completely accurate unless you were there, right? So you have to make artistic choices. And that's why I love that Malcolm is our editor. You know, the other thing I would say about it being a live recording, this is the language I'm using around the office right now. So it's a little less formal, but I actually also, in addition to loving classical music, I'm a large sports fan. And it is really similar to me being at a live recording, a live performance, to showing up to your rivalry game at, at home. We feed off of the crowd. We really do. And so I, I just encourage people, whether they come to this recording or any concert in the future, to understand as an audience member that their presence it has a massive impact on us and uh, I, the amount of gratitude that we have for the the impact our audience brings to us. I, I just want to make sure that everyone hears that. Christopher Jackson, artistic director and conductor of the Bach Choir of Bethlehem, speaking with us about the 2023 Gala Anniversary Concert to be held Saturday, November 4th at Packer Memorial Church 
at Lehigh University. The concert gets underway at three o'clock. It is a world premiere performance and recording, the new scholarly edition. Malcolm Bruno is the luminary, the scholar, and he has created this edition and is working closely with Dr. Jackson on bringing the score to life for all of us. The Bach Choir of Bethlehem celebrating its 125th anniversary with a performance of the Felix Mendelssohn version of the St. Matthew Passion by Johann Sebastian Bach. The ensemble of Bach choir singers, the Bach Festival Orchestra, as well as national soloists will perform. On the web, bach.org, B-A-C-H.org, bach.org. There will be a reception and dinner to follow if you are able to attend. It's part of the benefit for the Bach Choir. For more information on the web, bach.org, bach.org. The 2023 Anniversary Concert, 125 Years of the Bethlehem Bach Choir. Saturday, November 4th at Packer Memorial Church at Lehigh University in Bethlehem at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. It is a world premiere performance as well as a live recording, and we're invited to attend Felix Mendelssohn's version of the St. Matthew Passion by Johann Sebastian Bach led by artistic director and conductor Christopher Jackson, featuring the Bach Choir of Bethlehem, the Bach Festival Orchestra, and national soloists. For more information, on the web, bach.org, bach.org. <laughs>